Great pleasure to see you all. My name is Gad Human. I'm one of the uh, conveners of the seminar. Uh, it's a particularly uh, important, as I say, personal uh, pleasure uh, to welcome Colin Clark uh, this evening. And I say personal because uh, I met Colin uh, on the second of his trips to Jamaica, second of his extended trips, which forms the background to the 1968 year of that journal. I met him in my first year of doing research in Jamaica. So you can see that we have known each other. You can do the math yourself, how long we have, we have known each other, and it's, it's been a great pleasure. And before introducing Colin, I'm going to ask Maxine Molyneux, who is a former director of the Institute and uh, um, involved in the, the head of the series, to say a few words uh, by way of introduction. Thank you very much, Gad. Well, it is also a huge pleasure for me to be here tonight with uh, the launch of Colin's book. Uh, I'm the editor of this series, Studies of Americas, that uh, Palgrave Macmillan uh, publishes. And I have to say that um, Colin is an absolutely exemplary author. Not all authors are as meticulous, sedulous, and, and careful in their editing and presentation. So congratulations to Colin for having the prize for being an outstanding contributor to the series, not just because he writes with such clarity and care, but also because the content of this book <coughs> is, um, is absolutely riveting. And it is, it is two moments in the history uh, uh, of this whole country and region, really, which, which you, when you read it, you will find absolutely fascinating with all these cross-cutting currents of what was going on politically, socially, and so forth. So I strongly recommend this book to you, um, not just as the editor of the series, but because I have enjoyed working with it and enjoyed reading it and indeed have learned a great deal from it. So I just really wanted to be present to say those few words. Uh, we have got some, there are some copies there. One is circulating, I think, so it'd be nice if that one could go around so you can have a look at it and taste it a little bit and hopefully buy it and enjoy reading it in your own time. So that's really all I wanted to say, except that the series Studies of the Americas welcomes uh, contributions from authors, prospective authors, and um, many of you are sitting on a manuscript that we're looking for a home uh, I'd be very glad to look at it and advise you on it. So that's all I have to say, except to wish Colin a wonderful launch and great success for the much. book. And thank you, Gad, for being chair of this meeting. Very good. So Colin, uh, as I'm sure most of you know, is a Professor Emeritus uh, in Geography at Oxford, uh, having spent, as we were talking to Rory, having spent a few years before at, at the University of Liverpool. He his list of publications is extensive, and if you look in the book, you will see many of them listed. He is an urban geography, ur urban geography geographer who's worked extensively on Kingston, Jamaica, on San Fernando and Trinidad, on Oaxaca in Mexico, on ethnic and cultural pluralism generally. So a very wide range of interests and publications. And he will be talking this evening on, as you will see, the subject of his book. Uh, so I will pass it over to Colin. Thank you very much, Gad. <clears throat> I'll start off then by, by giving a very brief introduction and say that my 1961 journal, on which I'm going to concentrate in this talk, deals with Jamaica in crisis. After almost 300 years of British colonialism, de decolonization had been precipitated by the 1938 labour riots. 
and implemented in 1943 by constitutional decolonization in the shape of adult suffrage. During the 1940s and 1950s, two political parties, the People's National Party and the Jamaica Labour Party, each backed by a trade union wing, had come to dominate Jamaican politics and compete for power. But the independence movement soon tangled with British post-war plans for West Indian decolonisation by a Caribbean-wide federation, and party political rivalries in Jamaica eventually put the project in jeopardy. Now, I've mentioned these two political parties, but most of what I want to talk about is way, way below them. I'm not going to say very much about the parties at all. What I want to do is look at the uh, political machinations that go, are going on in Jamaica, particularly in Kingston, in what I've called the political, uh, 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 political underworld. Fortunately, I've been in Jamaica for over five months when my newly declared friend, Ralph Fitzherbert, Mr. Fitz, took me down to West Kingston to meet Millard Johnson, the leader of the People's Political Party, and brother Samuel Brown, leader of the Foreshore Rastafarians. So I was able to draw upon my recently acquired knowledge of Kingston, rural Jamaica, and the slums of West Kingston as I was plunged into meetings with these two men. What I was not prepared for was Brown's searching questioning that afternoon and later about whether or not I was a Marxist, whether I thought a coup d'etat was feasible, and his inquiries about the role I might play in an insurrection. <laughs> I found Brown's questioning over the next few weeks chilling, and I was relieved when our one-to-one -one meetings came to an end, though I found them deeply insightful. I thought at the time that Brown imagined I was the agent of a British communist-inspired group. Having received no positive response from me to his leading questions, he eventually gave up. Why did I remain politically inactive but observant in Jamaica in 1961 when I was positively invited to become involved? I was constrained, of course, because I was not Jamaican. I did not trust the direction of the radical movement and its leaders, Millard Johnson, and particularly Sam Brown. And I concluded that Brown was a clever, unscrupulous opportunist with no policy other than to dominate any society that his radical thoughts and actions brought into being. Anna, can you hear me at the back? Yes. Well, that's just that the, these are the two major figures who are going to crop up, particularly Sam Brown. And I want now to talk a little bit about the local standing intelligence committee reports, what they were, and what they tell us about the underworld, not least of all the two, or two people I've mentioned so far. In the year 2010, Professor, Professor Robert Hill of the Department of History at the University of California, Los Angeles when eliciting my help with the role of M.G. Smith, Mike Smith, a senior lecturer in sociology at the University College of the West Indies, in researching and writing the Rastafari movement in Kingston, Jamaica, published in 1960, generously sent me 24 of the monthly Jamaican Local Standing Intelligence Committee reports. Intelligence reports, for sure which were prepared between December 1959 and June 1962. And I've subsequently built on their revelations by my own researches on Jamaican materials at the National Archives in Kew. In particular, I consulted a remarkable document entitled The Development of Racism in Jamaica, prepared by the special branch for the Local Standing Intelligence Committee, 
This is a special, this is a Jamaican special branch of the Jamaican Constabulary, and completed in July, the 4th of July, 1961. This is, as far as I recall, it's actually completed about three days before I was first taken to meet Sam Brown and, and the other people, so they're more or less coinciding in time. But of course, this secret report, I read for the first time only about, I can't remember now, four years ago, four or five years ago, something of that sort. <coughs> now, this report, called The Development of Racism in Jamaica, is an expert and polished synthesis, possibly revealing the hand of the British MI5 officer resident in Jamaica, of materials in the earlier intelligence reports with pen portraits of the leading black activists <coughs> and a subtle appraisal of changes in the shifting power of, of the various players, racist and Marxist, in the slum sections of Kingston over the previous year. It contains the bold perception that the Rastafarian Sam Brown was by late 1960 the chosen political of the militant left selected by Hugh Buchanan a man I've mentioned already, a master mason and Marxist member of the People's Freedom Movement. And it concludes that the surprise emergence of Millard Johnson as a popular national figure in the early 1960s required negotiations and compromises on behalf of Brown and Buchanan, who had to adjust to somebody who had more charisma because he was a trained barrister and more power because he was the son of a quite rich black businessman. Now, there are some overlaps between this report on racism in Jamaica and a paper written by M.G. Mike Smith in 1961, an unpublished paper called Race and Politics in, in Jamaica, which I thought, always thought, because he showed it to me, was in fact written for himself and for me to read, but it turns out it wasn't written for me just for me to read, it was written for Norman Manley, who was the Premier of Jamaica at this time, and for his party, the People's National Party. And it seems likely that the author of the development of racism, whether an MI5 officer or not, had read it and possibly spoken to Smith about it. Smith, incidentally, I should add in parentheses, was my thesis mentor. Incidentally, this paper on race and politics, as I say, had been shown to me by Smith probably in the middle of July. And I'd read and noted it, and it appears in the bibliography of my doctoral thesis. Of course, there was no Xeroxing in those days, so it wasn't something you could whip off and you know, pop through the photocopier. So I laboriously uh, made handwritten hand, 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 uh, notes from, from this document of about 30 pages. Now, the value of the intelligence reports, none of which, in fact, contradict my own information in my journal, is that they make linkages between the individuals that I was either not aware of or could not always make with confidence during fieldwork. Furthermore, the reports for 1962 give me insights into what happened in Jamaica immediately after my departure for the United Kingdom at the beginning of October 1961. Nevertheless, my Jamaica journal supplies the substance and tones of, tone of conversations that I had with various interlocutors in Kingston, and these have no equivalent in the abbreviated and synthesised, but to my view, highly accurate, reports of the special branch. Special branch reports are just um, ter tremendously synthesised. They name all the key people um, who the agents have, uh, have, uh, have overheard or have integrated with, um, while of course not revealing that they are working undercover. But they don't actually tell you what anybody actually said to anybody else in, in, in conversational style, whereas you'll see when you read my journal, if you ever get around to reading it, 
you have to listen to it, some of it in a few minutes, uh, that uh, it, it's, a, it's got a conversational style. Now, the value of the intelligence uh, reports, I said, sorry, I, I've used the intelligence reports and other archival materials to footnote the text of my 1961 and 1968 journals and also the introduction to the journal itself. Much of the security material, however, is so closely related to the 1961 journal that I've placed key pieces of it in the body of the text itself, especially in chapters 3 and 4, so that the reader can benefit from the juxtaposition of interview material and the corresponding historical record. And I'll give you some examples of this towards the end of the, uh, the, end of the talk. To enable the two texts to be distinguished, I put the archival materials into square brackets together with some linking comments of mine to make sense of the relationship between the two documents. Robert Hill sent me scans of his intelligence reports in early July 2010, but I didn't look at them until I'd finished transcribing my <coughs> 1961 journal, which was already underway, and I finished it about a month later. When I did read them, I was totally surprised to discover that I did not feature in any of these intelligence reports at all. <laughs> Though most of the public meetings in Kingston, at which I had been present in July, August and September, were recorded in the monthly intelligence reports. And I must have been highly visible as a white observer in black lower class neighbourhoods. I discussed this in the book. Not, you can ask me why I think that's the case, but uh, I'll just leave it at that at the moment. Now I'd like to move on and talk about, about the, the, um, the, the, um, the, the fourth topic on, on the list, the Rastafari report. The now famous, Rastafari report, famous report on the Rastafari movement had been produced in the immediate aftermath of the Red Hills incident, what was perceived locally as an, attempt, as an attempted June 1960 armed coup against the Jamaican colonial state. This incidentally was taking place while I was sitting finals in Oxford. So <laughs> while I'm busy grinding out 10 or 11 papers, this coup, attempted coup is going on in the Red Hills. <coughs> It was organised, so the authorities believed, by the Reverend Claudius Henry, at that moment in prison awaiting trial, <coughs> and his US-based son Ronald, and it represented the largest outbreak of public violence in Jamaica since the 1865 Moorant Bay Rebellion, on which Cloud gave the last seminar here, I think. Reporting on the 28th of June, 1960, to the Jamaica House of Representatives, the details of the Red Hill's incident, Premier Norman Manley commented, this is taken from Hansard, the Jamaican Hansard, recently there has developed a section of the Rastafarian movement which introduced two new elements. The first was the positive preachment of violence against the country as a whole, and the second was its association with the foreign elements in the United States. I assure the House that the government has under active consideration other positive measures and has enlisted the support by way of advice and help of all those in the community who are best qualified to analyse and interpret the present situation and to make practical proposals as to what other steps may be taken to deal with it. It seems British trained barrister. <laughs> Outstanding among those best qualified to help with the situation clearly is Dr. M.G. Mike Smith, a family friend of the Manley's and an anthropologist on the staff of the University College of the West Indies. Now, three weeks later, on the 21st of July, by which time, though unknown to most people, he had probably read, digested, and approved a draft of the report on the Rastafarian movement, 
Manley once more addressed the House of Representatives, and he claimed that the leaders of the Rastafari do not associate themselves with violence, and they appealed to the University College of the West Indies to go down among them and study their faiths, beliefs and aspirations, and their hopes. And we are fortunate indeed in having now, as the head of the university, a man with vast and broad experience, Professor Arthur Lewis, who not only responded to the request, but went himself <coughs> and presided over the first meeting in the depths of the Rastafarian areas, where some 400 to 500 attended, and met them in person, and he immediately set up a small committee comprised of three of the finest young men of brains and specialised knowledge in that field, Smith, Ogier and Nettleford, who have worked day and night among the people and who have miraculously in two short weeks been ready to present a full report with recommendations. Now, Manley repeated the myth enunciated by Principal Lewis in the foreword to his report, dated the 20th of July, 1960, that members of the Rastafari movement had asked the University College of the West Indies to carry out a study of the cult, and that within a period of two weeks, a report was produced, the Rastafari movement in Kingston, Jamaica. Not surprisingly, the general public were not mollified by the report or its recommendations, and the cult continued to be interpreted as a potentially violent element that might impact upon the colony's transition to independence. Now, as readers of my journal will discover, in 1961, Mike Smith, as recorded on page 111 of the book, told me the same story as everybody else, namely that the Rastafari report had been requested by the Rastafari leadership itself and that the research and write-up had been completed in a two-week period, in reality 10 days in early July 1960. But the meticulous research of Robert Hill has, however, shown quite clearly that the Rastafari report was commissioned by the Jamaican government in late June 1960 and was researched and written by Mike Smith with his co-authors, Roy Ogier, a historian, and Rex Nettleford, a political scientist, playing minor supporting roles. In Robert Hill's view, the study was written more to address Jamaican security problems than to provide an academic, academic research on the Rastafari movement. I should add in parentheses, Robert Hill gave a paper here just over two years ago on the work he'd been doing, looking at, um, at um, uh, the whole background I've just covered in the last five minutes or so. And uh, the, um, the book, my book, uh, does in fact refer to all that and gives you the website uh, where his uh, preliminary uh, findings are, are set out. But he and I have been interchanging ideas over these materials for the last five years or so. Hill argues that work for the report actually started in mid-May 1960, not in early July. It started in mid-May 1960 when Mike Smith joined the secret rehabilitation of Rastafarians committee set up by the Ministry of Home Affairs and chaired by Monsignor Gladstone Wilson, uh, I think a Catholic sort of social science worthy, with Mike Smith as its deputy chairman. And details of this secret committee, which you'll hear later on, Mike Smith also mentioned to me, was reported by Mike Smith to David Lowenthal in a key letter of the 12th of May. Um, he writes, you know, dear Dave, um, you know, I've been, since I got back from America, I've been called to join in this secret uh, Rastafari committee, and he gives an outline of what's going on. But um, anyway, that's by the by. The Jamaican government's main aim 
what you might call, I suppose, the security strategy between the imprisonment of the Reverend Claudius Henry, Henry in April 1960 and the outbreak of the Red Hills Uprising in June 1960 had been to get Mike Smith to meet, identify and explore the most dangerous Rastafari, such as Wanerjee's in Trenchtown and Sam Brown on the Foreshore Road. To divide the Rastas into their component parts, to manipulate them by proposing a government-sponsored mission to Africa, recommended in the report, and to co-opt those leaders who are susceptible to emigration or rehabilitation. If the various Rastafari groups fell out with one another, or some lost significance, as the Bonaggi and the United Races organisation did, were virtually non-existent when I was doing field work um, in the middle of 1961, so well and good. Mike told me in 1961 that he had spent several days, I had assumed during July 1960, as part of the rapid survey for the Rastafari report, interviewing Sam Brown, the Rastafari leader on the Foreshore Road, and recording 60 hours on tape, because he thought Brown was just such a clever and dangerous man. It now seems highly likely that these time-consuming tape recordings must have been made before July 1960, otherwise they would have taken up too much of the 10-day period of research and writing, alleged research and writing, um, allegedly devoted to the Rastafari in July 1960. Brown never mentioned these tape interviews to me in our conversations, nor did he ever allude to the existence of M.G. Smith. Through our conversations, especially from the middle of July until he left Jamaica in the second half of August 1961, Mike Smith was able to give me a great deal of confidential background to the events of 1960-61, to I'll, I'll read some of those out in a few minutes towards the end, and comment on the substance of what I was learning in West Kingston. The information I supplied to him also enabled Mike, who seemed rarely to leave his study in his home on the UCWI campus, to update his knowledge of current events and crucial actors in West Kingston, though that interpretation did not occur to me at the time. I felt very vulnerable when I was living alone in my flat on the empty campus of the University College of the West Indies during the summer vacation of 1961 because of what I knew about Kingston's political underworld, and I often wondered how much knowledge of the, the Jamaican government had. The intelligence reports indicate that it was very, very well informed indeed. I'd like now to uh, move towards the end of what I'm going to be talking about and talk about the um, Rastafari African Reform Church and the First Africa Corps. The Reverend Claudius Henry's African Reform Church was distinctive within the Rastafari Back to Africa movement and generally held at arm's length by many cultists. Since the Rastafari believed that Hedil Selassie was God, but no leaders themselves were treated as divine while Henry claimed to be the black Jesus, the son of God. The Reverend Henry did not wear or advocate wearing a beard or locks, as many, but not all, Rastafari did, though many of Henry's followers were, in fact, locksmen. The, the police raided Henry's church on Rosalie Avenue in West Kingston on the 6th of April 1960 and found a variety of weapons, dynamite, letters from Ronald Henry, his son brought up in the United States and an American citizen, and two letters addressed to Fidel Castro. One of the letters to Castro read, All our efforts to have a peaceful repatriation has proven a total failure. Hence we must fight a war for what is ours by right. Therefore we want to assure you, sir, and your government, that Jamaica and the rest of the West Indies will be turned over to you and your government, and after this war which we are preparing, preparing to start for Africa's freedom is completed. 
and we, her scattered children, are restored. They're getting ready for any invasion. On the Jamaican government, therefore, we need your help and personal advice. Henry was arrested and jailed on suspicion of treason felony. In other words, the intention to commit treason rather than treason itself. The former carrying a potential custodial sentence, the latter, of course, carrying a, a, a capital death sentence. Two months later, on the 12th of June 1960, the Reverend Henry's son Ronald arrived clandestinely in Jamaica from the United States using Montego Bay as a port of entry and making his way to join the American First Africa Corps in Kingston. First Africa Corps is um, Ronald Henry's own private army, sort of vaguely platoon-sized, and all trained by the, in, the, in the US military. Shortly afterwards, on the 16th of June, June this is four days later, after, four days after Henry arrives, Howard Rollins, a black American citizen and an associate of Ronald Henry's, took delivery in Kingston of a large refrigerator dispatched from sea, by sea from the USA, behind the rear panelling of which were stowed guns, ammunition and other military equipment. Rollins and another black American, Eldred Morgan, took the weapons by car to a secret camp in Malines Mountain, part of the Red Hills, a rural area to the north of the West Kingston slum, where Ronald Henry and his black American First Africa Corps had gathered, plus some Rastafarian associates of Ronald's father. But the Americans and the Rastafari fell out, almost certainly over the target of their mission. Jamaica, supported by the local Rastas, or Africa, by the First Africa Corps. The First Africa Corps wanted to use Jamaica as a guerrilla training ground. They didn't want to have a, a, pop, a pop at the Jama Jamaican government. As events unfolded, it was assumed by the Jamaican authorities, all these machinations are going on, uh, the, these two groups fell out, the Americans and the Rastas fell out, and three Rastafari, including Thunder Beckford, the Reverend Henry's deputy in his own cult, were murdered and buried. As events unfolded, it was assumed by the Jamaican authorities that Ronald's aim was to seize the government and free his father, whose request for bail in June had been refused in court on the day before the case of weapons had arrived in Kingston. Following a security tip-off on the 21st of June 1960, a combined army and police force raided the camp in the Red Hills, and two members of the Hampshire Regiment, who were stationed in Jamaica at that time, were shot and killed by the First Africa Corps in an ambush. Retreating into the African St. Catherine Hills, Ronald and all his companions were eventually captured. The Reverend Henry was imprisoned for ten years in late 1960, and Ronald Henry was hanged early in 1961 for his uh, involvement in the murder of Thunder Beckford and the other Rastas. The subsequent report on the Rastafari movement, this is the M.G. Smith, uh, Ethel, Rex Nettleford and Ogier report, and noted that whereas it had previously been an object of amused scorn, it was now, after this event, regarded for the first time as a serious threat to the island's, wait for it, security, <laughs> is the word, <laughs> by emphasis. Smith, Ogier and Nettleford observed the great majority of Rastafari brethren are peaceful citizens who do not believe in violence. We have no evidence that the Rastafarians as a group are being manipulated by non-Rastafarians with violent beliefs such as communists. Paragraph or two passes and then it goes on. Rastafari has no links with Marxism either of analysis or prognosis. 
But for Jamaican leftists, the violent part of the Rastafari spectrum is a gift. Capitalist, bourgeois, and proletariat can be directly translated into white, brown, and black. Revolution becomes redemption with repatriation as the issue provoking bloodshed. The Marxist vanguard, he said, wears a Nyabingi cloak. Nevertheless, my research in 1961 was to show that within a short period of time, these last three sentences quoted from the Rastafari report, as Mike Smith knew perfectly well, were providing guidelines for action among the Marxists who were trying to manipulate the Rastafari movement and anything else that could be manipulated. In particular, uh, Jamaican Marxist Hugh Buchanan, note a former advisor of the Reverend Henry, was starting to manipulate sections of the Rastafari who were either Marxist already or amenable to Marxism. And violence was certainly being contemplated as a tool by Sam Brown, the leader of the Foreshore Road Rastafarians. So I've just a few words on the mission to Africa, Marxism and the People's Political Party, and then I'll conclude this part of it before I give you a couple of readings from the book itself. After much negotiation and manipulation of the list of Rastafari representatives, an unofficial mission to Africa was dispatched by the Jamaican government. These manipulations over the membership of the mission take up a large part of, of the end of 1960. But eventually a mission uh, was sent out, I think in roughly April 1961, in the middle of my fieldwork, to investigate the possibilities of repatriation of Jamaican blacks to Africa. <coughs> the mission visited Ethiopia, key of course link there for the Rastafari, and a number of countries in West Africa, and produced two highly optimistic reports in the summer of 1961, a majority report by the non-Rastafari delegates, and a minority report by the three Rastafari members, Mortimer Plano, also known as Mortimer Plano, Fillmore Alvaranga, and Douglas Mack. But the upper and middle classes in Jamaica failed to appreciate that the mission to Africa would undermine the influence of the rapidly growing group of leftists in the Rastafari movement, namely uh, Sam Brown and his associates in his political party called the Black Man Political Party, which is listed on the information about him on the uh, circulated sheet, sheet, who appeared to revere Karl Marx more than Haile Selassie. Some leftists, particularly I think Brown and Buchanan, were far more interested in Marxist revolution than in repatriation. Both had at one time or another been named members of the mission to Africa to represent the Rastafari, but had, left, but had been left out of it before it departed. During the summer of 1961, therefore, the core element in the Rastafari movement polarised and split. The religious brethren surrounding Mortimer Planner placed their hopes in repatriation, while the Marxists became increasingly committed to revolution in Jamaica. And Hugh Buchanan, who had lived in Cuba as a young man, and spoke Spanish, had established links with the Castro regime, who was later, during the course of 1961, to go on a mission with um, the, uh, the Cuban communists uh, to the Soviet Union, no doubt blending quite easily with them, both as a Marxist and uh, as a Spanish speaker. Soon after the middle of 1961, some Marxists, Buchanan and Brown particularly, attempted to draw the Rastafari movement into the fold of a new political party. This is the People's Political Party, which had been launched by Miller Johnson in April, this bringing together a host of black racist organisations, about six of them, I think. Miller Johnson, a black Jamaican barrister, had burst on the socio-political scene in Kingston in the second half of 1960, founding the Council on Afro-West Indian Affairs in September. 
And by resurrecting the name of Marcus Garvey's party in the 1930s, the People's Political Party, in April 1961, by appearing in African robes, showing films about Africa, and making a direct appeal to race, Johnson seemed for a while to sweep all before him as the black lower class flocked to his meetings. It soon transpired, however, that the People's Political Party of, um, of Johnson was virtually a front for Richard Hart's People's Freedom Movement, which was a communist party by another name. The majority of African of Africa orientated Rastafari, aligned with Mortimer Planet, remained suspicious of these manoeuvres, of course, the more so because Johnson, though with a pan-African outlook, had actually denied the divinity of Rastafari. There is little doubt, however, that in a pre-revolutionary situation, Johnson would ideally have been a front man to confront the main political parties electorally, and once he'd succeeded electorally and been removed, I think that a Marxist Rastafari PFM junta would have taken control of the state, whether colonial or independent. But before any of this could happen, a much more direct line to a coup, and a much more direct line to a coup taken, Jamaica had to be free from federal encumbrances. This brings me to the last point I want to talk about, the federal <coughs> referendum. Two opposing camps, as I mentioned at the beginning, had been formed, one supporting, the other contesting Jamaica's membership of the West Indies Federation, set up as a multi-island colonial state in 1958. Nominally in Jamaica, attitudes were split along party lines, the governing People's National Party being pro-Federation and the opposition Jamaica Labour Party, Labour Party against it, though there were many in each party who were hostile to their party's federal policy. The Jamaican electorate in September 1961 rejected federation by 54 to 46%, with a turnout of just under two-thirds thereby jolting the two upper classes, white upper class and brown middle class, out of their perennial complacency into a state of pretty excessive panic. The Jamaica Labour Party immediately, you know, for them the whole thing is really a, a gambit to, to, to get the government to the polls so they could beat them on any, any sort of grounds, it wouldn't really matter what it was. But the JLP immediately agitated for a general election to be held prior to independence, and this election, the last to be organised in Jamaica under colonialism, was held in April 1962 and was won by the Jamaican Labour Party, not surprisingly, with 50% of the vote, but so arranged across the constituencies that it took 26 of the 45 um, electoral areas. The People's Political Party of Johnson fielding candidates in 16 constituencies, of course that wasn't enough really to be very significant, gained just over 2% of the national vote and failed to win a single seat. And the Marxist Rastafarians were discredited. Sam Brown receiving fewer than 100 votes in the Kingston Western constituency. So the Rastafarians were left to dream of their return to Africa. And the lower class rejoiced that it was to be free for the second time since slave emancipation on the 1st of August 1938, on the 1st of August, the same date, 1962. But victory in the referendum was in reality a defeat for the dissident groups that had campaigned for it. It did not produce the impasse that they had hoped to exploit, but a solution, independence, that the Jamaica Labour Party and the People's National Party could act upon and the masses could embrace as freedom from British colonialism. My 1968 journal, however, shows that this optimistic evaluation of decolonisation was very severely misplaced. I'd like now just to finish off by um, reading um, some pretty brief extracts. First of all, from my, one of my interviews with Sam Brown, and then a very key extract from 
a longish meeting I'll say more about in a moment with Mike Smith. I'd been in Jamaica for almost six months when these two interviews took place, between whom I now see very clearly, who I saw less clearly at the time, as the two major protagonists of the 1961 crisis in Jamaica, Sam Brown, Rastafarian and Mike Smith. The meeting recorded here was the second meeting that I had had with Brown, but the first when I was entirely on my own, in his shack, in the Fort Sherwood Scottish settlement. You may wonder what this is. This is Sam Brown's shack. Actually, this is the little parlour in front of his shack, and you went in through a door, as far as I remember, somewhere about here, into his little yard, and then came, as it were, from the back uh, towards the, the shop, but into the, the, um, the, the little uh, shack itself. There is a black and white photograph, which is very much wider than this in the book, where all that is detailed. But I gather some people who haven't re realised the relationship between the two have been a bit confounded. And although I told the publisher what the title of this was to go uh, to be named on the back of the book when, uh, when sort of illustrating the, the cover, they, they, they just said it was a photograph by me taken in 1961. Sam Brown, Thursday the 13th of July. So this is just about nine days after the, 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 uh, that special report by the special branch on black racism in Jamaica. In the afternoon, I go down to visit Sam Brown on the Foreshore Road, in the Foreshore Road squatter camp. Sam asks me what help I can give. I say I want to see peaceful change take place. I don't realise he's a communist. He replies that he thinks violence may be needed, and I'm not to repeat that. I add that what I support is social justice. Sam asked me what his are his chances of success. He is prepared to fail or die if that is his destiny. This is one of my parentheses. Clark, 2015. Throughout our conversation, I thought that Brown was testing me, trying to find out if I was an agent of some kind and probing me for my view of his likely success in a revolutionary coup. Brown had had a similar conversation with John Vickers, a member of the People's Freedom Movement, and his girlfriend, Catherine Morris, in his hut on the Foreshore Road on the 4th of April 1961, though Vickers had shown none of the strength that, restraint that I did. Vickers told Brown that if the Rastafarians wanted to stage a revolution in this country, they could now succeed. If people were not here, they must feel we are more against brown men than against white, says Sam. To please me, I wonder. I ask, what about Russians who are white? Answer, Russians have a classless society. This runs counter to Sam's general view of views about white man. Sam is obviously communist, but wearing a cloak of racism. This is the Nyabingi cloak again, I think. I ask about Millard Johnson, who I thought was middle class when I met him four days ago. Sam replies that Johnson is prosperous, but he, Brown, has come up from the gutter and has a link with the people. Sam asks me confidentially if I'm a Marxist. I reply that I believe in democracy. Despite my colour, he tells me, he will come to terms with me if I will help him. I'm starting to feel afraid. Sam mixes tobacco and ganja into a spliff and smokes it, sucking on the length of the cone. I asked Sam whether he would stay in the squatter camp under all circumstances, a question he won't answer. He sees himself as a dictator which comes out in his attitude to his warriors, his woman, his children. The community on the foreshore road lives communally, but does it apply to Sam Brown? There seems to be a link with a communist cell in Veer. Veer is part of the Sugar Belt of Clarendon. I asked Sam about the Rastafari conception of God. 
But Sam's reply, reply indicates that this is not of great importance now. Politics and economics are more important than religion. At this stage, I ask myself, who do they believe is God? Rastafari or Karl Marx? I think that Brown believes in Brown. I wonder whether Sam thinks that despite my denial, I am a Marxist contact. He observed, take control first, formulate plans later. Does Sam really want peaceful change? He assured me he didn't want to hurt anyone, not if he can be sure of success without violence. I asked Sam about relations between him and Mortimer Planner. Ambitious ambition thrust us apart. Necessity will bring us together, he replies. Clark, 2015. The continuing connection between Brown and Planner is revealed by a letter dated the 28th of April, 1961, intercepted by the Jamaica Special Branch which Sam Brown received while Mortimer Planner was abroad <coughs> on the unofficial mission to Africa. In it, this is a quotation from the report, Planner complained that articles had appeared in the African press describing Rastafarians as a barbarous sect who would not be allowed into Africa without proper training. Planner blamed the Jamaican government for spreading false reports of Rastafarians in Africa and stated that the mission was doomed to failure, this despite encouraging reports in the local press that the mission was being well received. Now, the final entry I'd like to read has been extracted from an eight-hour... It's almost a Jamaican tropical heat here. Um, <laughs> from an eight-hour session I had with Mike Smith on Saturday the 15th of July. This is, this is I think, three days, three days later after the, after the Sam Brown meeting. Um, it was two, two, two sessions of four hours on the, on the Saturday <coughs> afternoon and evening, and the whole interview covers nine pages in the published version of the 1961 journal. Um, and I've selected just um, some passages roughly from half of it, so it won't take very long to read. Mike Smith, Saturday the 15th of July. Mike told me that the report on the Rastafari movement had been requested by Mortimer Planner and Sam Brown, among others. Clark, 2015. This is incorrect in the light of Robert Hill's research on the origins of the Rastafari report. It is most likely that Mike Smith was commissioned by Norman Manley to write it, and the involvement of OGA Nettlehood and Principal Lewis of UCWI was largely to provide academic camouflage to conceal the political origins and intentions of the survey. This is Mike Smith speaking to me. Brown is using Rastafarism and Marxism to promote Brown in all probability, is much less sincere than Johnson. Brown was originally a cycling champion and crowd hero, but he sank to the Fortall Road, and his present hostile pose is logical. However, he is a petty capitalist and owns a shop. On the foreshore, he is challenged by Dixon, also known as Brother Man. He's a raster on the Fortall Road in the same camp. He'll crop up again in a few minutes. Mike tells me about racist meetings which take place at Dr. Douglas's house opposite Mike's former home in Retirement Crescent near Crossroads. If anybody knows Keats, that's more or less in the middle of the town and it just, just into the polite suburb, but only just in 1961. Mike tells me about racist meetings taking place at Dr. Douglas's house opposite Mike's former home at Retirement Crescent near Crossroads. They spied on Mike and then vice versa. Dr. Douglas is black and a dentist and is associated with Hugh Buchanan, who was recently in Cuba. 
Buchanan was associated with the Reverend Henry, Mike Smith now tells me. That's how I knew that, but I later discovered 40-odd years later from the same thing from the intelligence reports. But Henry, uh, but Buchanan dissociated himself from Henry, presumably before Henry was apprehended in April 1960, when he realised that his attempts at rebellion were amateurish. Buchanan and Brown are in it together, Mike assures me. Buchanan has been known to Mike as a communist from before the Second World War. Mike Smith was then on the point of leaving school. He had a very distinguished school career at Jamaica College, where he was a friend of one of Norman Manley's sons, which is, explains the, the very long depths of uh, the close relationship between Mike and, and the Manley family. <coughs> Buchanan and Brown are in it together, Mike assures me. Buchanan had been known to Mike as a communist from before the Second World War. Buchanan is a building contractor who occasionally sleeps on the foreshore, presumably in Sam Brown's hut or in, certainly in the encampment. But Hart, Richard Hart, the effective leader of the PFN, is a Jewish lawyer. How can they promote racism? When will the communists realise that this is not a disciplined society? This is Mike showing his knowledge of living in, being Jamaican. Yes. Jamaican peasants used to be confronted by the Marxists with the terms capitalist, bourgeoisie and proletariat. But Mike thought they might have understood better if the Marxists had talked about Dives and Lazarus. We turn to the Rastafara report and Mike explains the rationale behind the principal recommendations. The establishment of the Ethiopian Coptic Church is intended to channel Rastafari towards peaceful and religious ends. It is hoped that the mission to Africa will separate the sheets from the goats, that is, the back-to-Africa enthusiasts from the revolutionary element. It is anticipated that the breeding space for government will be cre created by rehabilitation, rehousing and additional water supplies in West Kingston, and thus change the social atmosphere by the time of the return of the mission. Finally, the aim is to stop police persecution, which is because that is merely giving solidarity to the Rastas. The police should stop shaving Rastas, why remove their insignia? The implication of that being, of course, wearing their insignia, you can trace them. Without it, they can go underground. Mike adds that both Brown and Planner are first-class material. When it comes to the argument about who should represent the Rastafari on the mission to Africa, Brown wanted to run the whole thing. Clark 2015, Mike's typescript, Rastafari Development's Secret, which, is, which, is, which uh, covers um, the month of July, but starting after the Rastafari report has been published. This is now a report out of the way. He's now engaged, I think, by Norman Manley to get together a committee of Rastafari who are going to decide which Rastas are going to go to Africa as representatives of the government. Mike Smith's typescript, Rastafari Development Secret, goes into the attempt to put together a representative group of Rastas to meet Premier Manley on the 17th of August, 1960, and details the dominance of Sam Brown in the negotiations. We agreed, says Mike, we agreed, this is him and Ogier, because um, Netherford has come to England on, uh, on leave, we agreed that whether Brown was a one-track revolutionary or not, he did seem to have split the council, which could have been extremely useful to him. Eventually, two representatives of the mission to Africa were granted to Local 37 of the um, Ethiopia World Federation, Inc. 
a very intelligent local, local and key place, says Mike. Dr. Douglas was also selected to go on the government mission as an official representative of the Jamaican government. Brown told Manley at a meeting in, in August 1960, whether this is at the meeting with Premier Manley or on the subsequent occasion, I don't know because I didn't know enough about it to ask that sort of question when I was re receiving this welter of information. Brown told Manley that he wanted Buchanan as a government representative on the mission to Africa. But Manley replied that as the government was paying for the mission, it would provide who it liked. Buchanan could go, but only in one of the Rassel seats. This has led to tensions between Brown and Buchanan, and Brown's position has been damaged by Dixon's comment, Dixon from, not Doc Green, but from the Foreshore Road, that Brown would promote a Marxist over one of our brethren, presumably meaning Planner. What the Marxists must do, according to Mike, is not preach the gospel, but to precipitate a crisis and jump in afterwards. Echoing, I now discover, the words that Brown had given to me, take control first and formulate plans later. A unifying force, according to Mike, would be an attack on a black policeman, not a white man, significantly. I wonder whether Brown is unprepared to move. I say to myself, in my original journal, is unprepared to move because he cannot be sure of personal success. And he clearly, I mentioned elsewhere, terrified of a future which is following either the Henry's, either uh, incarceration, or if he puts a foot wrong, and there's bloodshed. Um, the, the noose. Rebels, Mike goes on, should start an, start an uprising in dispersed pockets. Government forces can sustain a battle for only two to three days without reinforcements. Rebels should blow up the Palisados runway, which is the runway of the main international airport. Manley must keep troops after the Hampshire's leave, with independence pending in 1962. And he says a British security man is staying on and MI5 may be in town to counter Castro and the Cold War. Clark 2015, it is likely that Mike was referring here to the British security liaison officer, a member of MI5 whose post was retained in Jamaica after the British army left immediately prior to independence. I think the army went out about two weeks before independence itself. According to Mike, John, Mike Johnson, Douglas and Buchanan, all these people you've probably got fixed in your minds, part of the black middle class element in the People's Political Party, would, under favourable circumstances themselves, push out the coloured group. A second revolution would oust Johnson and allow the communists, seeking to reform the social structure, but only to place themselves or their group in a dominant position. And I say to myself, in my journal, I ask myself, what about the Jamaican people in all this? Historically, Mike finishes off telling me, there was a rift in the TUC, so Richard Hart went beyond it to form the People's Freedom Movement. The Rastas are split east and west, Marxists and non-Marxists. The communists, too, are divided into those who use and do not use the Rastas. Mike points out that Bustamante's chaotic leadership, Alexander Bustamante's chaotic leadership of the Jamaican Labour Party and, and of the colonial state in the 1940s is still applicable. But will Johnson take over his charisma? Or will he just be a front man? Mike concludes that Manley's socialism came 20 years too soon. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much.